Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Welcome to America's premier true crime podcast, True Crime Uncensored. I am Burl Bear. That guy next to me is my fact checker, Mark C.G. Boyer. Producer, Matt Allen. Apparently our show now starts between 2 and 2.10, depending on meteorological conditions. Greg Olson, very famous author. Greg, welcome to the show. Uh, hey, Burl. Uh, quite uh, a long waiting. You haven't been on the show for about uh, 10 years or so, but we've been doing the show for 13. We think it's about time to have you back. Yeah, I like to do it once a decade. <laughs> That's about as much as most people can stand. People have greater tolerance. Well, the first question that, that comes to mind, because I also write books and grocery lists, is how the hell do you get so many books written so quickly? Well, that's kind of my secret. You know, it, it, I don't have a regular life other than writing those books. When you really get down to it, I put a lot of effort into that. So uh, do you have a regular regimen schedule like you get up? Well, actually, no, because I, I had a job at uh, Boeing for many years, and I just retired. So I did all of my writing on a weekend. Oh, you didn't quit the day job. That was part of you. Uh, I know, I, I, I would write only on weekends, and because I only had a limited amount of time to do it, I would work really, really hard to get a book done, and my regimen was really write as many words as I can every weekend, and by about, uh, you know, three months, I would be done with a book and ready to start another one. Now, back in the, the old days, um, when steam was still rising from the surface of the planet, like, say, 2000? Yes. <laughs> It would, it would be, you know, you'd have like a year to work on the book, it'd be another year before it came out if you were with, you know, the old-fashioned publishers, which I was. And uh, you were looking at a two-year game plan before you even start seeing whether or not you're going to earn your royalties back. Well, yeah, and you know all that's changed. Yeah, um, drastically. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I can see my performance in sales every single day. You know, and I don't have to wait uh, six months to a year or two years to see any money, which is great. I get paid every month. Yeah. So all of that really has changed a lot because, I mean, there were some lean times when, and you've been there too, where yeah. you're waiting for that check. You really do, And then it's so disappointing when it comes. Or it doesn't come they, at all. Or they say, we've got, we had to hold some in return. Yes, yeah. What you the know, hell is like, that? Yeah, so all of that stuff. I think has changed, and um, I, I like it, don't you? Oh, so do I. Uh, now, maybe if you did the numbers, it would be more money up front somewhere, but even stretch that out. So much when you send the pictures, so much uh, on your mother's maiden name's birthday, you know, all sorts of ways of making you wait, you know, to get checks. My favorite one was when the check didn't arrive after I promised everyone they'd be paid on such and such a date. Right. It's saying, we have changed our policy by which we pay our authors. Don't bother to sue us, because by the time you did, you'll have been paid. <laughs> which publisher was that? That was Kensington. Oh. Oh, you were there a long time, weren't you? Yeah, it was there 2000 until 2013, 15, something like that. Right. But I was fortunate because yeah. I had a hot book. My first one of them did incredibly well, so they immediately signed me to a multi-book contract, erroneously assuming the rest of my books would do as well as the first one. Right. I've known um, some authors that uh, had, like, bidding wars over books. 
and then everyone stopped bidding, and nothing happened. I mean, that's a real tragic story. Well, you know what? I always thought I started uh, 30 years ago, maybe around when you did, and I'm still standing. And there's, I think about all of the people who were more successful or started at the same time and then petered out. And you know, like you and I, we're still in it. Yeah. And that's that, that, <laughs> we're old. Well, I mean, I mean, you're really old, right? I am, I'm ready to be carbon dated. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you'd already done that. I thought you had a uh, show on that. Yeah. <laughs> Mummified. Uh, uh, this is my, uh, Mark Boyer has a question for you, Greg. Burnley yes, Mike. Wrote his what was that? You're really. I didn't hear. I, I can never understand a word he says. No. <laughs> Not um, only am I old, I'm deaf. Now, now that the the publishing world changed, do you do your own editing? No, I I hired out. And uh, I, you know, I got to say something. I'm with Amazon, Thomas and Mercer, the imprint, and that has been the best experience I've ever had in terms of the editing process. You know, in, in the past, and Burl, you know this, in the past you would get somebody to do a line edit or a copy edit, right. and then you'd have to turn it in and be done. With, with the Amazon model, it's this development, the developmental editor works with you for like a month, back and forth, on the book, it's intense and it's fun, and your books at the end are so much better. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah, Lee Goldberg, yeah. my nephew, was with uh, Thomas and Mercer also. Oh yeah, that's right. I get a kick of that, because Thomas and Mercer aren't the names of people at the publishing company. It's the intersection of two streets in Seattle. That's right, again, I'm, I'm from the Seattle area, and I know yeah. it well. <laughs> there used to be a great restaurant there. It was the great uh, Escargot, right there around Thomas and Mercer. But that's yep. a, a, another day, another decade. But I heard their service was really <laughs> yeah, service is slow on the sales. Yeah. <laughs> okay, your latest book, The Hive, this isn't true crime. Is it but is it true crime inspired? Well, a little bit of years and years ago I did a well I tried to write a book about a channeler. Remember, remember New Age channeling? Yeah. Alright, so I started working on an expose about this woman who had a big following and uh, Warner didn't want me to do it because they said, you know, everybody knows that she's a fraud, so they're not going to buy the book, and her fans are not going to buy the book because they love her, so there, there's nothing to sell. But I was interested in that idea of, like, a powerful woman having, you know, a mythology about her and being evil, and that's what The Hive is about. It's about a woman that's got, you know, like a cosmetic line, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, she's also dealing in murder. So, it's a thriller. Oh, I like a thriller. I like thrillers. I'll probably love well, you, this book. Yeah. You, yeah, you've written a bunch, haven't you? Done, you've done fiction. Yeah, yeah, my life story is mostly fiction. <laughs> oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> no, but I mean, yes, I have. But the thing about being a true crime writer, maybe you're the exception that proves the rule here, is my private eye novel, which got great reviews, dismal sales. I think for some reason, people who buy true crime Maybe you get mad when a true crime writer writes something that is a true crime. I don't know. Caitlin Roth and I had this, the same discussion. Yeah. I, I think I, I've, I've been lucky in that way and that uh, true crime was dying, you know, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I felt it was. There was so much, uh, like TV, eating it all up. It was hard to get a good story that wasn't already picked over. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. So I, I switched. 
and Kensington let me do that. And it worked for me, you know, like, and, and I think it saved me in terms of my career. I, you know, I, I did, a, I've probably done more novels now than I have true crime, but I missed true crime, and I came back to it with the book If You Tell, which, you know, it's it's been uh, like in the top of Amazon for like two years now. It's great. <laughs> yeah, but, well, we were both very fortunate to have uh, Jack Olson as one of our biggest supporters. Absolutely. Which was a thrill for me. <laughs> I told him one day I read the, the opening of Salt of the Earth and I wanted to take my word processor and throw in the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> because I, there's no way I could ever write as well as this guy. No. <laughs> that was very Nobody. funny. But he was a yeah. big fan of you and he was a great supporter of me. He was really that thrilled with me. Here's the thing, I mean, he was, he was that, he was the greatest, there's no doubt about it, and, but he wasn't the most successful. And, you know, and that has to go to, to Ann Rule, who figured out a way to tell a story that really got, you know, millions of readers involved. And there yeah, he was wasn't a bit of a happy about that, though. Two. He wasn't happy about that. Oh, no, no. He didn't. He was not her fan. No. They were friends, but then they then they kind of parted ways. Yeah. But I, but I liked them both. I mean, they both were great both in, in were my very career. Both, both were very me. kind to me. Yeah. But they, you know, they're living in, uh, you know, hundred, you know, 50 yards apart practically, and there's a great rivalry there between the two of them. Well, stylistically, they were quite different. Yes. Yeah. I think there's this thing, is this, uh, the first time I met him, he tracked me down at a Mystery Writers of America meeting to uh, talk to me about Man Overboard, which is a true crime book that was that I've ever seen. It was kind of funny. Yes. And what he liked was the fact that I violated all the rules of writing true crime, except for journalistic integrity. <laughs> right. And that's what he loved. He says, you quit journalistic integrity, and you violate all the rules. <laughs> he says, I loved it. <laughs> Let's talk about this, Burl, about journalistic integrity, and in that I am like you, I'm sure, and that I wrote everything as true as I could. I didn't make up anything. My quotes were quotes people gave me, or they were from a transcript. You know, I wasn't guessing. Mm -hmm. And I find, like, the news now, like, I don't know what to believe, but I know that when I wrote my books, they were absolutely true. And, and like, now you can say anything and call it true. Now that's That really upsets me. As Buddha said a long time ago, the truth is not a matter of opinion. The truth can be investigated and ascertained. That's right. And uh, I have a, a real passion about that. Uh, in uh, the book that the friend Gerardo and I are working on right now, we do something I don't approve of, but I'm going to let it slide for reasons that will become apparent if you ever read the book. And that is what someone's thinking. <laughs> in a true crime book, you really can't say what someone's thinking unless they told you what you were thinking, what they were thinking. Yeah, right, and even, of course, that's a guess, but, I mean, I do that a lot. I say, what were you thinking at the time? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how did you feel about it when she cut off that guy's head? Yeah. You know, that were, kind of thing. Were you thing. entertained, amused, or Yeah, best? yeah. What was your reaction, and what was your thought process? I mean, I, I, I believe that helps the book, <laughs> but, you know, if I say somebody's, you know, thought about it, that's what they told me. Yeah, that's usually the standard I have, is if they said it, or if I want, if I'm, I have a feeling about the balance of quotes to narrative. I want to have quotes in there, commentary. Mm -hmm. Yep. Even if I have to invent a composite character to say.
put myself in as Jeff Reynolds' character, who was, who was the protagonist in my fiction book. But in my fiction book, I say that that's not his real name. That's very smart. <laughs> and uh, so in the true crime books, if I want to, if I want to quote myself without quoting myself, I have him say it. I, I, I might have done this once or twice where I said, uh, blah, 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 said a friend, and yeah. I was the friend. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have people who have given me permission to quote them, whether they said it or not. You'll see quotes from uh, great detectives so like Fred Wilson. Yeah, go ahead. What is your, so what's the state of true crime today? I'd love to hear from somebody like you on what you think of the genre, where it's going, and where we are right now. Because I always felt like the 90s were the golden age of true crime. There were so many great books, great authors in that game, and then I'd say it got trashy, yeah. and then it kind of petered out where there wasn't much of an audience because of TV and forensic files and all that stuff. And now it's a podcast and Netflix. But, yeah. but I want to hear, what do you think of it? Well, uh... You know, your friend of mine, Jack Olson, would have these conversations, and he thought it had really gone to hell. You know? Yeah. And uh, I was never into true crime until I wrote a true crime book. And I wasn't a big reader of true crime. As far as, I mean, I did Band Overboard, which is a humorous true crime story. There's not a bunch of serial killers or murderers in it. Because I was asked to, and I think Ann recommended me. Yeah. But when I did my first serious one, which is Murder in the Family, which is a horrifying true crime story. Uh, that came out in 2000, so it was right there on the cusp of the collapse, as I say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the cusp of the collapse. <laughs> that sounds almost intestinal. <laughs> uh, so we trace it back to that book. <laughs> yeah, it's all your fault. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, that book still disturbs people, because uh, it is a horrifying story. But you're, you're absolutely correct. It starts getting uh, exploitive. And right. I don't know if you get those things with, how can you be such a bottom feeder, Greg Olson, writing true crime books, making money off of other people's suffering? Right. They don't no, say I'm that to a newspaper reporter. <laughs> they don't write a letter to the editor of the New York Times saying that. Right. How could you make money off that tsunami by talking about all the dead people? Right. They don't do that with the TV reporter or Dateline, but they do it to no. us. And those Dateline people make a whole lot more money. I guess they, almost anybody's making a lot more money. We had like, uh, Matthew Watts on the show, and Matthew yeah. Watts revealed one of the things about Dateline that a lot of people say, oh no. They, you know, it's always a surprise who really did it because they give you all these red herrings on the way. Yeah. Well, these red herrings weren't even pink until it was on TV. <laughs> they amp him up. I feel sorry for the poor SOB watching TV, and all of a sudden he's a prime suspect. But he never was originally. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to sue over something like that. They like the publicity. started, we were the only one. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> that was 13 years ago. Almost right. 14 years ago. There weren't any other true crime podcasts. Um, I, I, unfortunately, as the in air quotes faction, I get to listen to the other podcasts. Yes. Um, and some of them are fantastic. There's very little imagination in the presented material. Um, straight on, you know, <coughs> what happens in the processing. And when I when I was sitting here watching Howard Stevens uh, and Burl, uh, I got to learn that there's ways to go in different directions with the material to get more insight into what was going on instead of just person A killed person B. <coughs> and I think our show uh, provides a little less uh, intellect, <laughs> a little more imagination. I'm sort of no, you're not. you're plenty of intellect. Yeah, well, we have this, we you... have a, a good friend who lives up north that does his own podcast, and it's like pulling listening to his monotone. Uh, yeah, people aren't listening, as I've discovered doing this true crime podcast for all these years. People aren't listening to be entertained. <laughs> well, like that, my favorite murder half of it is just a chat show with those two women. Yeah. And they, they've got, you know, millions of fans. Yeah. So, so you must have millions by now, right? Oh, yeah, I wish I had as much money as I have fans. Uh, <laughs> right? still be broke. Still be broke. But what's interesting, on the different podcast platforms, it tells you what your ranking is of all the yep. different shows. And supposedly, we're in the top 2.5%. Either that is only 2.5 people listen to the show. I haven't quite figured out what that little figure means. Well, that top 2 point, that's fantastic, really. Yeah, but uh, no one's sending me any money. Right. But I hope they buy the books. Is uh, that's the best right. I can do. And I think, for the most part, of fellow authors and criminals, because we do have criminals on this show, yeah. A lot of true Those crime shows don't good. have criminals on the show. We didn't get that. But one of our regular contributors is uh, Punch Tanamirovic, the world's second greatest diamond thief. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, his father was number one. The reason his father was number one is his dad never got caught. Yeah, that would be making yeah, better. 1957 till 2003 or 2000, no, 2013, his dad was uh, had six uh, theft crews working the diamond district, never got caught. Wow. And retired happily. He's 84 years old. Invited me to go fishing with him. He might throw me overboard since I did the book. <laughs> right. <laughs> you revealed everything. I've been showing the corrupt uh, police officers we talked to. Yeah, we have corrupt police officers on, yeah. Okay. Well, you're, you're doing more like a chat show type yeah. of crime. And, you know, so you can pretty much own that space. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the last stage out of town. <laughs> it sets the show apart. Yeah, right. as, as in tear it apart. Uh, it does continue to go on. People tune in at 2 o'clock, and just like you, they go, I guess there's no show this week. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was over. <laughs> I guess that, that's the end of that. So it's a good thing that we, uh, we do upload this show if it gets recorded successfully, which sometimes it does. Right. Uh, then I have to call the guests up and say, gee, we didn't get you. Uh, can I call you on the phone and interview you later this week and do it again? Uh, but I think we did get you. I think, we do, I think we've got a uh, computer out there on the on the lawn. <laughs> yeah. That's recording you right now. <coughs> so, you know, this is a, uh, 
you both sort of into uh, the uh, the fiction realm. That's a different writing process than uh, the investigative format for true crime. Which one do you like better? I okay, that's a great question. I get it every now and then. I like writing true crime because I like meeting people. So I love that part of it. You know, I get to go and hang out with them or meet them at their house and see how they live. I love that. The thing about fiction is I just sit there and do it. And I don't rely on anybody else or any information. If I'm missing something, I make it up. So it's, fiction is very easy to write. You know, which you would think that's fantastic, but I love the true crime stuff because it's far more interesting to do. Yeah, I love the research. At least I used to love the research. When I was in the I Northwest, uh, I knew remember everybody. When, remember when you had to go in person? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and now if you if you want to go in person to get something, they tell you you can't. You yeah. can't do it online. Yeah. Oh. You used to also be able to get the uh, trial transcripts and all the court documents easy. Now they yeah. go, oh, sorry, that's $5 a page. Right. As if, you know, what yeah. happened to the freedom of information? <laughs> I know, I mean, I, and yes, the people are a lot more careful now, or they don't, you know, they're afraid that, like a prosecutor's afraid to hand over stuff to you now in case you find something they did wrong. Oh, you yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like... Oh, sometimes, uh, I mean, that's really dangerous, that's seriously dangerous. We had a fellow on our show, police officer, and he went to work, he has a book out, he went to work for some uh, police agency. And they said, hey, we've been accused of sending some innocent people to prison. Will you take a look at this case and make sure we did everything right? And he comes back and he says, I looked at the case, you did everything wrong. These people are innocent. we got to get them out of prison. And he said, sit down and shut up. <laughs> Next. <laughs> he didn't shut up. That yeah. cop consistently stayed on it. He got those two innocent men out of prison. His reward, he didn't get his pension. Why not? Because his contract said, you cannot reveal city secrets. It was oh, a city wow. secret that these innocent men were railroaded to prison. That's terrible. Yeah. So you go, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Uh, that, that's the one we're working on right now. I work with Frank Gerardo, who he knows everybody down here in Southern California. He's got the, all the connections. So he does all the research that I used to do when I was up in the Northwest, where I knew everybody. Right. They don't know anybody down here, but why would they talk to me? <laughs> right. Well, they'd probably probably charm them, and they would talk to you. Yeah. They uh, still have that going for you. <laughs> yeah, the criminals will still talk to me. <laughs> they would. Yeah, well, uh, you're probably the same way I am. Criminals will tell me everything. Oh. Because they know they can trust me. Right. I. I People will tell me a lot of things they've never told anybody, and I've never burned a single person. I don't, you probably haven't either, but that, I can feel really good about that, because I know a lot of people who have. Well, that really is not good. No, it's <laughs> it not good for us. Unfortunately for you and I, when we try to do something. Yeah, right. I think I was the first person on this show to have someone from inside the Russian mob come on and talk about how they get into the Russian mob, the kind of stuff they do, kind of stuff right. they did. And they told me ahead of time, there's some things I can't talk about. I can talk about my cases, things I've done, but I'm not gonna talk about such and such situation in such and such city, which could get me killed. <laughs> yeah, stakes are high. Uh, but I mean, he came on and he was 
great guest. And that was a real coup. You know, I had dinner with the guy in Florida. We hit it off, and he's been a good friend since. So he said, what do you do? Once you've been a career criminal, what else can you do? Try getting a job somewhere where your body's covered with these tattoos. <laughs> this right. burglary, yeah, robbery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a little difficult. Well, that's yeah. what happened to what? Punch. He got a real job, and then they found out who he was, and they escorted him out of the building in handcuffs because he used to be a diamond thief. Hmm. Sorry. What? Let's hope <laughs> Sorry, we're uh, not in the target handbook. Yeah. Let's hope the stuff you have going soon actually see the light of day. Going with who? With Punch. You have a stealing Manhattan. Yes, now that's another one. Uh, you ever Who's signed that? any contracts for representation that didn't go well? No, I never have. <laughs> You're very lucky. You know what I have? I, here's what's funny. I, I've had the same agent for 30 years and there's no contract. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's been great. But you got burned by who? Uh, I, I'm not going to say on the air because it's, the contract's not up yet. They still might pull a rabbit out of a hat. Right. <laughs> but uh, it's the book that I thought was going to be out, of course, COVID has something to do with this. Sure. But uh, the, the book, the movie deal, everything uh, that was supposed to have happened by now hasn't happened at all. So if it hasn't happened by uh, January when the contract's up, uh, I'm just going to put the book with... Uh, with Wild Blue or uh, Thomas and Mercer or something like that, just to get it out before all the interest is gone. You really should tr try for Thomas and Mercer. What does one have to do to get into that? Who do you call well, Mr. Thomas or Mr. Mercer? Um, um, I don't know what they. I mean, I could give you a name. I'm sure Lee could too. But um, I'll tell you what, it was life changing for me to be with that publisher. Really? Yes. Absolutely. In the biggest way possible. And, and the creative process and the, and the money and the attention they give you, it's its the best I've ever had. And I don't know anyone that's unhappy there. And you really ought to consider it. Well, I will certainly pursue it because I have a variety of projects. I've got, uh, actually, I've got three, three true crime projects coming out this year. Uh, and then I've been bugged for a sequel to my private eye novel, even though I've got rave, rave reviews and no sales. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the first chapter of it was included with the publishing of the first book. So people probably expect the rest of the book. You know, the, right. those who did buy it. Do you have true crime that's in the hopper now that you could sell to somebody like a Thomas and Mercer? Oh, yeah. 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 Because here's the thing. They just... You know, I was their first true crime book, which was their number one best-selling book last year, okay? Number one of every book. Wow. And they, you know, so they tested it with me. They've got a couple of others coming on. It's obviously showing that there are those true crime readers that are in the Amazon, you know, Universe, ecosystem yeah. that want to buy your stuff. So you really ought to, you ought to pitch them a true crime book because you're... A known author with a following, and you write a great book, so why not? Yeah, that's what I say. That's what I tell them. I write a great book, really. Trust me. <laughs> I think I told did I tell you that the last, did you write it? You wrote Headshot, didn't you? Yeah. That was the last book my mom read before she died. It was not my fault, really. really. It was on her nightstand when she died, <laughs> and I know, and I know she finished it. 
you know, that's, that's anyway, what did it. I, Lord, let me live long I, enough to get this over with. I, you know what? I don't know if I'm blaming you or <laughs> proud of you or what, but uh, that was the last that she ever read. Now, that was a strange book. Uh, people either loved it or hated it. You probably know writing true crime. There are people who do not want to hear the word court or courtroom or lawyer anywhere in a true crime book. All they want to know is how Sally decapitated Ralph or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, for me, I find the court stuff fascinating. And in that particular book, in that particular story, the courtroom stuff was just as insane as the crime. The crime was totally right. insane. So were, it got so severe, there was uh, two mistrials, numerous appeals to the state Supreme Court, and one of the judges threw a fit and screamed, I have Excedrin headache number 859. I quit and stormed out of the courtroom. <laughs> and I went to the, uh, uh, to Olympia, to the, uh, where they have everything, you know, for all the appeals. Right. I said, I need some copies made. They said, of what? And I said, everything. And they just looked at me and said, everything? Everything. No one's it's ever asked for, no one's ever asked for anything but everything before. I never got a bill. I had to give rent a moving van because so many boxes wow. of material. I never got a bill. This thing took all the papers. All the, them out. That's the one where I took all the papers, spread them out on the floor, and opened the windows. So they got blown all over the place. I should be so lucky. So I'd have to put them back together. Now the reason for that is you discover relationships between events that you would never have known if you had kept the files separate. So that's one of your secrets. That's one of my secrets. Make a giant mess that you can't clean up and sit there like an idiot and stare and at the pages. Live, live on it. Just yeah. live in that like, a, like an episode of Hoarders. Yes, exactly. As you sit there, that mess goes, oh, what the hell have I done? Right. You'll notice, oh, wait. The intervention. <laughs> it's a killer. We'll have a family <laughs> member come and get you out of that mess. They tried to do that. Yeah, they thought I was lost my mind. <laughs> but I was the only one to notice that the killer tried to do an act of undoing upon the murder. He tried and he tried to keep himself from doing the murder by having people go with him. And they all turned him down except one guy who was drunk who passed out when he got there. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. But he tried to stop himself. Right. But that would have never come out if I had just kept the files separate. <laughs> but blown all around the room. <laughs> all these thousands of pages, you know, putting them back together. Uh, I'm working on a case uh, in Spokane. Oh, I love Spokane. And, and co yeah, and COVID's really been a trouble spot for me, too, because I like to do things in person, not on the phone. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a case where a... There were like three prostitutes killed, and they didn't solve the case. They thought it could be Green River or it could be Yates, who was a right. serial killer, and they never, they never got it. And then, you know, like ten years later or fifteen years later, they ran the DNA from the scene. And it was a woman. There was a guy. Yeah, or a guy that was a woman. woman. Yes. Yeah. Doug and Donna. Yeah. So, so I, you know, and his thinking was, or that I will change my sex. And that will undo my crime. I didn't do it. Right, right. So you beat me to that when I was thinking of it. If no one else does that one, I'll do that one. But I'm glad you're doing it. Save me the trouble. Uh, I've been on it. Listen, and you know about... Here's the thing. On the records, it's taken like a year and a half to get Spokane. They sent me like 10 pages a month. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, I hell mean, yes. 
I don't because I worked with the Homicide Task Force because I wrote Body Count, which is the book about Yates. Right. And they made me wait like six months to get the pictures of the body dub sites with no bodies in them, just the picture yeah. of the tree, uh, you know? Right. And, uh, yeah. and so much stuff was sealed. You know, there was nothing right. to get by the time you chased after to get it. But I got to tell you, uh, the guy who was head of the Homicide Task Force, uh, who later ran for sheriff and didn't get it, he was wonderful to work with. Uh, we got along famously. He was great. Yeah, no, the people are great. The, re the records people, I even said, you know, I'll come in in person and bring a copy machine. <laughs> yeah, I've done that. Or, uh, you know, okay. or I could just use my phone and they can know no, it's, it's a secure area or something. Yeah. Like, I remember I took okay, out a scanner. Fine. The scanner was, if you poor folks can't do it, I will. <laughs> yeah. And I brought I've in a scanner. They let me do it. They let me scan some pages. Great one was in I, Anchorage, Alaska, when I was doing Murder in the Family. Right. The guy says, Do I how am I was gonna pay for it? get all these copies? The guy takes me in the back room, puts in a sheaf of uh, copy paper into his own machine. <laughs> there you go. Said, What do I owe? He says, Let's see, how much is a uh, sheaf of tapping paper? $12.50. They wanted the book to come out, they wanted it. You yeah. think gonna be heroes with true, uh, true guy books? You know, most do. Don't you find that most do? Yeah, very seldom. Sometimes the families don't. Uh, right. Like in Headlock, and it's got the horrible pictures in Headlock, I mean Headshot, I got two books with similar titles. In Headshot, I did not select those pictures. I sent them in thinking that they would wisely not use the disgusting ones. But that person was on vacation. And so the most horrible pictures of the rotting bodies are right. in the book. Maybe that's what did your mom in, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you, I've learned never to send anything in I don't want to use. Yeah, yeah. When we did uh, <laughs> you know? uh, a show on the Black Dahlia. Yeah, Black Dahlia, yeah. And so I'm doing my fact checking, and I found the actual crime photo for uh, Chopped Up Butt. How delightful. Okay. So would you save those at home and look at them in private with the door locked? Uh, no. no, not anymore. That's just the last time. No, that's tomorrow. That's <laughs> it tomorrow? Guy who's got precognitive abilities that are amazing. I'll tell you, twice I have had, maybe more than once, twice I have had publishers send the wrong file to the printer. Oh, really? And the book that is published is not the book I wrote. It's an earlier draft of the book before the corrections. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was the story on Man Overboard, the first edition, the one that came out for Northwest Publishing. Wrong file to the publisher. And Jack, wow. Olson, Jack Olson told me there was one vote, one person kept me from being nominated for an Edgar for that book. And I said, I know who it was. He says, how do you know? He said, let me guess, E.W. Count. He says, you're right, how did you know? I said, simple. I asked her for help with the first chapter. Because it was very difficult. You know, it's like first yeah. time I'm doing a nonfiction thing. Right. You know? And she gave me great advice, which I followed. And I rewrote the first chapter. When the book came out, however, it was not fixed. It was the old version. And she felt slighted that I disregarded her advice. Oh, are you still friends with her today? I have not heard a word from her since. <laughs> but I'm sure she felt like I was just saying, you know, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need yeah. any wise advice. She didn't give me yeah, wise advice. advice. I rewrote the entire first chapter on her advice, 
and what came out was the uh, you know the work draft but even then it was still dominated with the world mystery convention so it's just think of what it would have done if it had been the right book you would have won <laughs> maybe uh, and then I had another book that I happened with also that uh, they sent the wrong file to the publisher that's right. always a big thrill because you can't just say oh could you please change that yeah. not like radio where you could go back and do an edit <laughs> when you, did you when you do a didn't you win the Edgar for something yeah I won the Edgar on my first book which is really nice which, is, you know, which that's wonderful because you could go go to hell after that but for the rest of your life you'll always be you yes damn right but I'll tell you I'm like uh, Aldo Ray who won the Academy Award Best Supporting Actor at the end of his life he was doing playing the doctor in porno movies and they can still say Academy Award winner Aldo Ray as the syphilitic doctor <laughs> and that's kind of my career right there Edgar Award winner and one time New York Times best selling author but you only got to do it once that's the yeah. trick folks if you want to be yeah. a New York Times best selling author you only have to do it once and do you think do you think that means anything anymore that it does to some people to me right. it does <laughs> right I if I look at my resume it says Burl Bear Edgar Award winner <laughs> New York Times best selling yep. author even though that was 21 years ago it was only once <laughs> and that's all it had to be uh, but then you stop put that in perspective you only have to do that once how many authors do that once you know right the right. very fact that you've been successful as you have as I have or whatever in any profession uh, the majority of people aren't right and they look at you and go wow I wish I, I wish I was Greg Olson I wish I was Edgar Corey <laughs> with an idea but I am one of those people that let the idea do whatever because that's how I write I don't I don't plot it all out yeah when I wrote uh, Capture the Saint which is of course fiction the Saint novel the famous Simon Templar yeah. Uh, it was based on the, uh, okay, what was his name? The, the, the cop who shot the guy in the alley, and the uh, the guy in the alley was wearing a tape recorder. Remember that from your youth? Uh, that was Yeah, that's when you were a young man that happened. And that's how they caught the cop, the crooked cop, is he shot, shot the guy who knew he was a crooked cop, and the guy knew he was going to get shot, and he wore a tape recorder. When right. the body goes to the morgue, they find the... Okay, it's just like a TV show. Tell me before you kill me, why are you killing me? Well, because you know I just said no. <laughs> just right, it, was like, right. it was true. It really happened. Out. It really happened. Right. So I put that in the book. That's the surprise twist in the, in the book there, right? Which is based on a true story. So I'll review the book and go, this thing where the guy has a tape recorder is the stupidest. Yeah. <laughs> it's unrealistic. Well, I it's the one thing in the book that's true. <laughs> Yeah, I get, well, I get that a lot where people review my book, like a true crime book, and they say, I didn't like the ending. Yeah. You know, like, well, that, well, that well, yeah, there was no suspense <laughs> no. in this book. He said on page three, who did it? <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah like right, these, these people are terrible. I don't like, they're not a likable character in the bunch. You're yeah, thinking, well, all of these murderers are disgusting. <laughs> yeah. And then on the... On the, the fiction reader doesn't like true crime because it's so bloody, yeah. you know, and it's offensive to them. And yet, the novels are bloodier or worse than a true crime book. Yeah. Oh, come on. Thomas Harris comes to mind. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Thomas Harris's book read as if they are synopses for screenplays. You notice that? They did, yes. And they do well. And it worked. 
Yeah, but it amazed me. I mean, I hadn't read any of his books until I read Hannibal, and it was like a screenplay synopsis. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't like a novel. And I go, huh? <laughs> like, here is the pitch for the next movie. <laughs> yeah. Get Julianne Moore. She's available. Yes. Yeah. Or, you know, Jody. Jo Jody won't do it because she doesn't want to be evil in this one, so. Hey, Burl, what about your Hollywood career with your books? Uh, I want to know, like, have you had one made yet or not? Uh, let me think. <laughs> I think I know if there was. Uh, the closest thing was they did an hour special on ID on uh, Taste for Murder. But that was like a documentary. You know, they had right. great police footage and they interviewed uh, me and they interviewed Frank. But uh, the guy uh, who made uh, the Ray Charles story, yeah, he wants to do a series of films based on my as yet unpublished book, Stealing Manhattan. But of course, there needed to be six hundred thousand dollars development money. Right. No, he's not coming up with six hundred thousand. Oh my! My no. diamond thief friend was almost ready to go out and steal six hundred thousand with his poor diamond. <laughs> Finance <laughs> debt. Maybe doesn't go back to prison. <laughs> you know what you're doing? I thought we had the money. In fact, I called him up, and uh, uh, I said, "I think I we got you. the six hundred grand for you." He goes, "Oh, great." I said, I'll call you next week. That was a couple months ago. I have a call with him. I'm ashamed to say the guy fell through. <laughs> he was that money. I mean, that is the way call, that's all I've ever had to. It's like, oh, we love it, love it, love it. It's, we're on our way. Uh, yeah. We're casting. Oh, and then... Uh, Nothing. Then you don't hear from him. <laughs> well, as Howard Lapidus, may God rest his soul, as he said to me, Burl, I'll tell you when you know you've got a TV show, a movie, or TV series. When you're sitting on the couch, watching it on TV, eating popcorn, that's when you know you got it. Right. Up until then, you don't. You got everybody there sitting on the couch with you, all excited. Yeah. And then it comes out and says, due to frequencies beyond our control. This happened. I wrote, and it's not out yet, but it will be out this year, uh, Twisted Twins, which is part of Killer Siblings. It was a debut episode this year, this season, produced by Matthew Watts, before the show airs, which features me prominently, and I wrote the tie-in to it. The father of the killers says, if you air this episode, I'll commit suicide. Oh. Oh. Well, there's no law that says we had to not, but... He bought my... Peter Allman's book to do a, and that was a uh, product tampering murder. Yeah. And it, it was, Katie Seagal was going to be Stella Nichol. They were up on the set in Vancouver. And not, and you can look this up on the LA Times, you know, archive. It got yanked because uh, Johnson & Johnson said, if you make this movie, we will never advertise on your air. Oops. And these sponsors now they meddle. Yep, I got I got to keep the money, but it's I really wanted that movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> it makes their product seem unsafe. Oh, seem unsafe. It was unsafe. <laughs> Greg Olson, his latest book is called The Hive. Thanks for being with us, Greg, and this one's for you. Hey,